0: Hi. Welcome to FizzGig. I'm Wendy Althwaite, and I admit to being fascinated by fizz. The taste, the tingle, and most importantly, the trivia. Do join me. We'll explore the myths and the mysteries of the world's greatest sparkling wines. Full disclosure here, I produce English sparkling wine in West Sussex myself, but this podcast is not about our wine in particular, or even about English sparkling wine in general. It's about the scintillating world of effervescence. I'll pop a cork and cast a pod every Friday, and I do hope you'll be with me. Don't forget to listen out for the pudding at the end. It's a little tidbit that, whilst not strictly on point, amuses me. Pop it in your goodie bag as a little fact to take away. So here we go. TGI Fizz Day. And today we're going to talk about the fourth musketeer in champagne, sugar. There are three different stages in making champagne where sugar comes into play. And the first is at ripening. As the grapes ripen, there's a build-up of sugar and a reduction of acidity. The riper the grapes, the sweeter they are. So the sugar is already in the grape juice when the grapes are pressed and it feeds the yeast during fermentation and turns into alcohol. So the sweeter the grapes the more alcoholic the wine. In cool climates like champagne, the grapes didn't ripen very well and sometimes they needed a little help. In the 18th century Jean-Antoine Chaptal recognized that adding sugar to wine before fermentation could increase the alcohol content of the wine and this is now called chaptalisation and is strictly regulated. However, chaptal's discovery meant that even grapes with less than optimal ripeness could be fermented into a decent wine. So sugar, whether from the grapes or from the sugar beet, helped at fermentation. But secondly, sugar is important at bottling. When the wine is bottled, the traditional method directs that the liqueur de tirage is added. This is a little sugar and yeast that's added to the wine to ensure secondary fermentation in the bottle. The yeast ferments in the bottle, creating alcohol and CO2, which, because it can't escape, dissolves into the wine and makes it fizzy. The more sugar there is, the more aggressive the bubble. So, if you hadn't added any sugar up bottling and the wine had fully fermented, you'd have still wine. If you'd bottled wine that had partially fermented in the ancestral method or the rural method or the petnat way, then provided there was enough sugar left in the grape juice the yeast would feast on the remaining sugar and make the wine fizzy. Bubbles made in the ancestral method tend to be fewer and smaller than those made in the traditional method. Less sugar, less bubbliness. And if you bottled your wine and you added some sugar and yeast at bottling, oh, you get lots of big bouncy bubbles. The early champagne makers had great difficulty calibrating their bubbles. Often they got it wrong. Remember, in the eighteenth century they weren't adding sugar at bottling at first, they were just bottling partially fermented wine. Sometimes they couldn't get the wine to sparkle at all and the merchants were stuck with trying to sell it as an inferior quality still wine commanding only a low price. If they had too many bubbles the bottles burst. These lost bottles had to be factored into the price of the remaining bottles making fizzy champagne quite expensive. Even if the bottles didn't burst they'd pop their corks and be lost to the cellar floor. To try and avoid this corks were tied on the bottles with string, knotted in a cross, dipped in melted wax. The string would be tarred or soaked in linseed oil or nut oil, so that it was hard as catgut and lasted several years in the cellar without rotting. Even the corks of still wines were secured in this way to prevent misunderstandings and infidelities. A royal decree of 1735 required corks to be attached with three threads, tightly twisted and knotted in a cross over the cork. This was the model for the modern muzzle, as gradually wire overtook string. But even if the early champagne makers could get the wine to be bubbly, keep the bottle intact and the cork in, the fizziness was very variable. In the 18th century, champagne was literally half as bubbly as it is now. Three atmospheres of pressure compared to the modern six atmospheres of pressure. The sparkliness of sparkling wines was so unpredictable that they were marketed according to their fizziness. First, there was mousseux, sparkling, or pétillon, which is sparkling but slightly more twinkling. This was the normal level of fizziness. Next, there was grand mousseux. This was super fizzy, and it was also known as sauteur, jumper, or saute-bouchon, cork popper. Just cut the string, and the cork would leap from the bottle by itself. demi mousseux this would delicately whiten the glass with a light foam and then disappear, so it was thought to cream the glass, which is where we get cremant. And finally, there was the Tisane de Champagne. This was a modest quality wine, lightly foaming, with no real effervescence. It was made from the second cut, or pressing, of the grapes, and it no longer exists. In modern times, champagne is hotter, and the grapes are riper, with more sugar, so the winemaker has to keep an eye on the potential alcohol of the grapes. There's a legal limit as to how much alcohol champagne can contain, and giving the wine, more yeast and sugar during secondary fermentation increases the alcohol by about 2%. So the modern winemaker may have to take account of the additional sweetness in the wine and interrupt the ferment or reduce the sugar in the liqueur de tirage before secondary fermentation in order to keep his wines within the legal limit of alcohol. So the third stage, where sugar is perhaps the most important because it directly determines the taste of the wine, is at dosage. The bottled wine evolves on the bottled ease for years until the lees needs to be removed from the wine by disgorging it. We talked about this before. The lees is riddled into the neck by turning it slowly from the horizontal to the vertical position. By the way, champagne houses very often show you a riddling pupitre, a sort of steeple-shaped wooden rack with holes in it for bottles to be stacked and turned. This is the technology that Verve Clicquot is reputed to have introduced. Riddling on it takes about three weeks. Most champagne is not riddled in this way, but instead is riddled in large gyro pallets, a machine that turns an entire cage full of bottles from horizontal to vertical. It takes days. The pépites are kept largely as an exhibit for tourists. Anyway back to disgorging. Once the lees is in the neck of the bottle, it's frozen and then the crown clap is flipped off and the pressure of the wine makes the frozen plug containing all the lees fly out of the bottle, leaving a space. This space is filled by the Liqueur d'Expedition, a blend of wine, sugar, and potentially other products according to the secret recipe of the Champagne House. In the olden days, this used to include herbs, elderflower, honey, and other non-grape flavourings, but these days it can only be a grape product, and it's usually brandy. Many Champenois just use wine and sugar and nothing else, but the option is there for the winemaker to add brandy if he wants. So it's the dosage which determines the final sweetness of the champagne. So let's have a peek at the label. You'll have noticed that on every bottle of champagne it has an indication of the sweetness of the wine. It just tells you the level of sugar added at dosage because the original sugar in the grapes and the sugar added at bottling will have fermented into alcohol by now, or mostly. But there's a bit of a trick which I'll tell you about later. Brut nature, or brut zero, this is up to three grams per litre of dosage, which is about a sixth of a teaspoon of sugar and equates to two calories. Extra brute is up to six grams per litre, is about a quarter of a teaspoon and is about five calories. Brute, so this is the main one, is up to 12 grams per litre, and that's about half a teaspoon of sugar and is seven calories. Extra Dry, which is between 12 and 17 grams per litre so 3 quarters of a teaspoon which can be between 7 and 10 calories dry 17 to 32 grams per litre which is a whole teaspoon and that's between 10 and 20 calories Demisec, which is between 32 and 50 grams per litre that's one to two teaspoons it's 20 to 30 calories and finally do which is over 50 grams per litre of sugar over two teaspoons and over 30 calories. Most modern champagnes are brute. Many people get confused by extra dry. Extra dry is not very dry at all and it's sweeter than brute. It's quite sweet so don't get caught out. In the 19th century champagnes were sweet And that changed when a London merchant imported some Perejouet in 1846 without it being sweetened. From 1876 this sort of champagne was designated brut and was just for the British market. Given the historical warring between England and France the French sometimes joke that it's brut for brutes but brut really means raw or crude so undosed. Pomeroy Claims to have produced the first truly brute style in 1874 called Nature, and again this was purely for the English market. The English liked the drier style so much they wanted it even drier and so extra brute was created. Now remember this only refers to the sugar added at dosage. Champagnes, historically, were very much sweeter than they are today and would be drunk at the end of the meal with pudding rather than during the meal or as an aperitif and different countries like different sweetnesses in their champagne so champagne was categorised into different tastes Goût anglais, English taste, which was between 22 and 66 grams Goût américain, American taste, which was 110 and 165 grams goût français, French taste, which was between 165 and 200 grams, and goût russe, Russian taste, which was between 200 and 300 grams. Of these, only the driest English is close to contemporary tastes, and that would still be a dry demi-sec or doux in modern categories, so pretty sweet. At the time, it was common for Russians to add sugar to their wine at dinner. It's been suggested that the Russians first started sweetening their wine to mask oxidization, but I've no way of verifying whether this is true. Also watch out, sometimes people nowadays refer to goût to mean aged vintage champagne, not sweet stuff. In 2010, a Finnish diver found 168 bottles of champagne from about 1825 in a shipwreck in the Baltic. Some were veuve cliquot, some were Juggler, now part of Jacasson, and four bottles were Heidsig. Once analysed, the champagnes were found to have much more sugar and much less alcohol than modern champagnes, and they also contained higher concentrations of iron, copper and table salt. These wines had a very high dosage, definitely in the doux category, 140 grams per litre, and that compares to 39 grams per litre, in Coke Original. But from 1945, champagnes became less sweet. The do category risked disappearing altogether. Brut champagnes were only 50% of production in 1945, but that soon rose to 90%. Only Belgium, Germany, and the Netherlands and Venezuela retained a constant love of sec and demi-sec and it continued to be about 40% of their champagne imports through the 1980s perhaps they were onto to something. There seems to have been a recent resurgence of demi-sec and doux champagnes, often called rich. These wines are aimed at people sunbathing near swimming pools, partying in clubs and continuing to drink champagne after dinner, not just as an aperitif. Moët et Chandon has Ice Imperial, which is a demi-sec designed to be drunk over ice. Moët marketeers aimed at the emerging markets like India where drinkers are used to spirits and they like sweetness. It pairs well with Asian food, because the spicy heat is offset by the sugar in the wine. It has a dosage of 45 grams per litre, and if you think that might be a bit syrupy, remember it's designed to be diluted by ice. Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier are dominant to give a rich body and structure, and a cynic might note that sugar is cheaper than wine, so the more sugar in the bottle, the less wine you need. Similarly, Verve Cliquot has silver-rich champagne, which is specifically aimed at the mixologist. I love a neologism; they've created clicologist. But don't rely on the term "rich" to mean "do." Paul Roger's Rich NV is in fact a demi sec with a dosage of thirty-four grams per liter. I'm all for experimenting in progress, or perhaps more appropriately, regress in champagne do be aware that sugar can also be used to mask faults in wine. At the other end of the spectrum, a special mention should go to Brut Zero, also known as Brut Nature, Brut Sauvage, and Ultra Brut, or even Skinny Champagne, which is a brand name. Recently, some champagnes have been marketed, principally targeted at women, in this way. If all the wine producer is trying to say is they don't add any sugar at dosage, I don't have a problem with that. But they seem to be suggesting that wine is sugar-free, and I do have a problem with that, because it's not true. Many small producers make Brut Zero or Brut Nature, which either have no added sugar or less than 3 grams per litre of added sugar at dosage. But the wine tastes dry but familiar. How can that be? It's all about sunshine and grape ripeness. In cooler climes, the grapes would ripen with sugars that have 10% potential alcohol, whereas in hotter climes, particularly with red grapes, the grapes will ripen with sugars of 15 or 16% alcohol. But the world is getting hotter and champagne is no exception. This means that riper, sweeter grapes result in wines that need less dosage because the sweetness is already in the wine. For example, 20 years ago, Paul Roger Brut non-vintage had a dosage of 12 grams per litre, but now it's 9 grams per litre. The producers who make zero dosage make champagne in hotter areas where the grapes develop higher sugars. They don't add as much sugar at dosage because there's unfermented residual sugar already there in the wine before dosage. It's just that no additional sugar is added, at disgorgement, to a wine that's already sweeter. And sadly, it won't make you skinny. Although the focus for the slim and health conscious is sugar, the focus for the body is calories. The body doesn't really care whether calories are sugar-derived or not. The first thing to realise is that alcohol is calorie-dense. It has 7 calories per gram, compared to 4 calories in protein and fat. In wine, calories come first from the alcohol and secondly from any sugar that's either added or left over after fermentation so wine from hot places has higher sugar levels than wine from cool places. Just think of port and Riesling. Each glass of ordinary champagne, with a dosage of 8 grams per litre, so a normal brute champagne, will contain less than a gram of sugar per glass. This is about 4 calories more than a non-dosed champagne. Burn off those extra four calories by lifting a bottle and pouring yourself a second glass. And finally on sugar, you should know that sometimes sugar at dosage is used to balance the acidity in the wine. Oddly, sugar and acid go very well together. The acidity in the wine makes you salivate, which is why you perceive juiciness. And then your taste buds pick up the sugar so that it tastes sweet. Think of a strawberry. You know that it stays white and highly acidic for ages to stop little creatures nibbling it and then at the last minute it develops sugar, turns red and tastes delicious. It's still highly acidic, but we taste sweetness and juiciness. It's nature's amazingly successful food pairing, sugar and acidity. But sadly, sometimes the winemaker gets it wrong and instead of balancing the acidity with sugar, he uses sugar to mask the acidity. This results in an unpleasant wine, which tastes first sweet and then bitter. It's very disappointing. So anyone for pudding? I'm going to tell you why size matters. A standard bottle of champagne is 75 centiliters, which is about six glasses. It was originally designed to be the perfect size for one person to drink at dinner and a Magnum is twice the size of one and a half litres, so about 12 glasses. Well, there's a lot to recommend a Magnum. It's the largest format bottle where the wine is actually fermented in that particular bottle and it's supposed to be the optimal size for bottle aging. Also, as the bottle is expensive, it's usually reserved for the winemaker's best wines. There's a small amount of ullage by the cork, the same as a standard bottle for twice the amount of wine, so there's a reduced risk of oxidisation. But the real joy is the practicality. Almost no one ever opens just one bottle of champagne in company. And if you're going to open a second bottle, start a magnum. Stay with your guests and don't interrupt the social flow by nipping off for another bottle. Also, a magnum is generous people notice and appreciate it. It's easy to pour, unlike some of the unwieldy larger format bottles, and one bottle will take up less room in your recycling bin than two standard bottles. Honestly. So if big is good, is bigger better? Probably not. They're tricky to pour and also the wine's been transferred from its original bottle to fill the bigger bottle so the wine loses bubbles and risks oxidising. And that means you have to drink a large format bottle immediately, making it a less good investment. But let's look at the scale of big bottles. First, there's a Jeroboam, which is three litres, so that's four standard bottles, with 24 glasses, and this is named after the King of Israel. A Rehoboam is four and a half litres, which is six standard bottles with 36 glasses, and he's named after the son of Solomon, king of Judea. A Methuselah is six litres, which is eight standard bottles and 48 glasses, and he was reputed to have lived 969 years. Salmanazar is nine litres, which is 12 standard bottles and has 72 glasses, and he was an Assyrian king dating from... Uh, 1250 BC. Balthazar, which is 12 litres, 16 standard bottles and 96 glasses. And he was one of the three wise men and the king of treasures, which is rather sweet. And Nebuchadnezzar, which is 15 litres, 20 standard bottles, 120 glasses. And he was the king of Babylon in 604 BC. No one really knows why Biblical kings were adopted as the names for champagne bottle sizes. We do know that winemakers in Bordeaux had used Jeroboam because he was a man of great worth and perhaps that started the trend for Biblical kings names for larger format bottles and these were only developed after 1940. Whatever the reason, here's a tip given to me by the fabulous master of wine, Clive Barlow, for remembering the order. Jerry met Sally Bain. Jerry, Jeroboam and Rehoboam met Methuselah, Sally, Salmanazar, Bain, Balthazar and Nebuchadnezzar. Jerry met Sally Bain. You're welcome. So there we have it, Fizzerati. We've crossed swords with the fourth musketeer, Sugar. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next Friday when we'll meet Champagne's cousin, often treated as the poor relation. Cremant. Don't worry, we'll be back in Champagne before long. There's so much more to tell you, but a little overview of the sparkling wine world will be useful. So until then, may your wine, like your wit, be sparkling. Chin chin!